Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Follow along with me now as I read from Exodus chapter 13. We're going to concentrate on this first verse to begin with. Now it came about when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and they return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around by the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. The name of this particular Torah portion is called Bashalak, and it means uh, when they were let go, when they Last week was bow, go, and the key thing that we wanted to emphasize from last week's portion was that Israel did not go from Egypt because uh, Israel wanted to go, because Moses said to go, or because Pharaoh said go, or the Egyptians said get out of here, but rather they went forth and they were brought forth by the Lord. And the emphasis here is to, to draw a conclusion, draw uh, inference about Pharaoh had to relent. Pharaoh had to give in to the Lord. And it comes to, as, as if you recall, one of the stories I shared with you about Pharaoh, one of the ancient stories of Pharaoh, is that he's the first uh, tyrant. He's the first uh, arch enemy type uh, who sets himself up against the Lord and who is judged, and he will be the first of many. The, the final one in the end of the ages is going to be the anti-Messiah, and so there's typology here between Pharaoh and he. And, of course, there's been many villains and archenemy types throughout the ages uh, between these two. And one of the great uh, stories of the sages that I've always been encouraged by is the one about where, where exactly is Pharaoh today. Well, he's, he's uh, at the gates of hell, and uh, he has a duty to perform that every tyrant who now comes uh, into hell... Uh, has to be greeted first by Pharaoh, of which he asks them the question and says, did you not learn anything from my life? Did you not learn anything from my experience of having gone up against uh, the God of Israel and the results that came from it? And so he's always preaching this lesson to tyrants. Part of this, and when he let them go, uh, is part of that lesson. The uh, There's a very interesting... Uh, to give an overview of this portion, essentially Israel has now had the Passover. They're leaving Egypt, and it's now in the days of what we call the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They're eating the unleavened bread. Their, their bread did not have time to rise, so they're escaping from Egypt. Now, just because they uh, got up and left the city of Ramesses, that didn't mean they left Egypt. They're into now the Sinai Peninsula, which is still part of Egypt. They're still in the process of leaving Egypt and, uh, and, and migrating uh, out of the land of Egypt. And what's going to take place here is that God is going to lend some insight into doing something kind of strange and unique because the children of Israel were probably kind of your typical modern-day uh, Christian. You know, the typical modern-day Christian knows there's a day coming when we're going to leave this place and we're going to the real promised land, we're going to heaven. So everybody's got this idea in mind, okay, when it's time to go... We're going to be out of here, and we're going right to the promised land. 
And there's a lot probably in Israel that probably thought that. A lot of sons of Israel said, oh, yeah, the plan is, okay, great judgments, and then we're out of here. We're going right to the promised land. However, that's not the journey they went. The promised land is in their future, but there's some other intermediate stops that they have to go to. And it emphasizes the fact they did not go directly to the promised land. If you were going to go directly from Egypt to the land of Israel as we now know it, and this I've provided a little map for you of the whole Sinai region, Egypt and Israel and the whole Middle East region, why you would have left Egypt and you would have traveled along this coastline of the Mediterranean, which is called the Way of the Philistines, you would have gone right to the promised land. Only God is going to give some insight, and he says, no, we didn't go that way, and there's some reasons for it. Uh, because God had really told Moses, I want you to bring the children of Israel to the mountain where I had spoken with you, Moses, and I want you to bring the people to me here because I have something to instruct them. And in next week's portion, we'll be at the mountain to hear the instruction of God. So instead of going by the way of the wilderness, we go by the way of the Sinai. We go by the way of, of uh, instead of the way of the Philistines, we go the way of the wilderness, the scripture says. And God lends a little insight into why that is. If the objective was to go to the promised land, then we would have gone through the Philistines. And believe me, if we could rally up 600,000 troops that they'll do in the book of Numbers, then we shouldn't have any trouble getting through the Philistines. But immediately God says, no, no, no. A war too quickly, having this war too quickly with the Philistines will discourage them. They'll be running back to Egypt, and this is not going to work. They need to get with me. They need to spend some time with me. Thus, we have a huge spiritual principle uh, being employed here, and that is that if anybody is going to be anybody in the Lord, you're going to spend some time in the wilderness with the Lord. And if you look what begins here, you're going to find this repeating itself. Prophets, uh, even Yeshua himself, uh, many will go to the wilderness, and, and, and if you sit and really talk uh, with some spiritual men and they share their testimony with him, all of them inevitably will tell you about a time in their life and their spiritual growth in which that they have felt that they went and spent some time in the wilderness with the Lord. They felt alone and separated from the other things, and they were learning and, and getting straight with the Lord, a series of things in their life. And in effect, that's what's going to happen to Israel. Israel is going to have to be transformed in their thinking, uh, in their whole way of, of evaluating things to come to know the Lord and to learn to trust the Lord. It's one thing to just be delivered out of Egypt. It's another thing now to know how to walk with the Lord and to know the Lord, although that was God's purpose that everyone would know the Lord by bringing them out. Now, it goes on to say that they camp at Sukkot. They're now being led by the pillar of the cloud. You know, the pillar of the cloud by day is leading them. The one, the, the pillar of fire by night is now leading them. And this is where we get into kind of an interesting Bible study of sorts about where exactly did they travel in the wilderness and where do we come to this point we call the crossing of the Red Sea? Because we're going to come to a point where uh, Pharaoh's chariots are going to come after him. They're going to be confronted with Pharaoh for a last time. God's going to deliver him. God's going to fight Pharaoh and destroy uh, Pharaoh's chariots, and they will truly uh, see the hand of God deliver them by the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, I made uh, this chart up here, and I've got your little map in front. And if you'll note, um, I've enlarged the map here. This little section right there, your map, 
is this area we call the Sinai Peninsula. It's the east side of Egypt. And they, we believe that they began in the land of Goshen, in the, in the Nile Valley, which is the rich part of the land of Egypt, that they originated the exodus there, and that they then went into the Sinai on their way to leave Egypt. And this is where uh, Bible teachers and Bible scholars and I kind of part the ways over what happens as to what took place. I'm going to give you first what most Bible scholars teach with regard to this. They say that Israel was over here in this area where we know archaeologically as we think is the city of Ramesses and the ancient uh, Egyptian cities that were made by the Israelites and over there where the pyramids and all of those kinds of things are. And they claim that really the crossing the Red Sea wasn't the Red Sea. It was really the Sea of Reeds. The Sea of Reeds is this area which extends up into there by the Sinai. And that what they did was they crossed over a kind of a marshy, shallow area, and that's how they escaped uh, Pharaoh's chariots. And that they crossed. Now, that's the traditional predominant teaching uh, of the crossing of the Red Sea, that the journey is like somewhere like here, and then maybe somewhere in the top part of the Sea of Reeds that they crossed over, into the Sinai, and if you were to go to Egypt and you wanted to go see what is traditionally believed to be Mount Sinai, which is, they're going to claim is a mountain kind of down in that part of the peninsula, and there's a monastery there, that somehow the children of Israel uh, journeyed down to here, and, and what they did was they kind of wandered around here in the Sinai before they eventually made their way up 40 years later into the land of Israel. But if you look at this account that is written here, Um, it doesn't track with that very well. And in fact, it raises all kinds of questions about biblical accuracy. In fact, that's what a lot of um, Bible scholars have actually concluded because they really believe that this rendition of the exodus of leaving uh, Egypt is true, and so they have a tendency to look at what we're reading now in Exodus 13 and 14 as being probably a little fabricated, maybe wasn't quite so accurate. And uh, besides that, it's Moses writing and Israel wants to sound good. And so they're going to kind of uh, elaborate on the story and, and make it uh, sound like it's more than it really was. And, and to the extent that they even suggest that the actual crossing of the Red Sea, you know, where God with his nostrils opened up the Red Sea and there was water standing on either side and how they went through on dry ground and then Egyptians, uh, Pharaoh's chariots, they came in there and the water came in and drowned all of them. And, uh, it, you know, it really presents a series of problems because either the Bible is wrong, you know, about this story or, or if you believe them, then the Egyptians drowned in about eight inches of water. And so I don't know which is the greater miracle, you know, to tell you the truth. But there's a miracle in there somewhere. Now, given uh, the choice between we can believe the Scripture or we can kind of use our imaginations and speculate, I think we're in far better ground to actually trust what the Scripture says. And if we follow exactly as the Scripture says, it proceeds on to say now in chapter 14, Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before, and it names off a place here, Pihah wrote between Migdal and the sea. 
You shall camp in front of Baal Zephon, opposite by the sea. Those are a couple of well-named mountains. Now, the scripture is pretty clear about it. It says, you know, it's, it's by Migdal, by the sea. And then it names these two mountains. And archaeologists and ancient peoples, they know about this. And I don't know why modern scholars have so much difficulty with this. It's because it gives a pretty clear marker as to where this is at. That first mountain that it describes is sitting right down here. It's down at the tip of the Sinai, just um, up to the, the uh, eastern edge. And in fact, this area, this coastal plain here, if you were to come down, you can walk this coast, but if you turn here at the bottom and then turn back, the mountain's range comes right down to the sea. In other words, you can walk down this way, but that particular mountain blocks you. And the famous Egyptian city, Migdal, was a famous fortress that was in the Sinai for the Egyptians. The Egyptians used to station some troops there uh, in this famous fortress called Migdal. And Migdal used to be right here, right down there in the tip of the southern part of the Sinai, just on the other side of that mountain range where you could then make your way up the coast. And the other mountain that's being made reference to, the second one across the sea, is a known mountain that's over here in Arabia, in the ancient land of Midian. Now, do you remember that Moses, when he spoke to God at the mountain, that he had been working for his father-in-law Jethro, Yithro, as we say, and that it says that he had been tending Jethro's flocks in the land of Midian, but that he had gone to the western part of Midian toward the sea. Well, if this is the land of Midian and you go to the western part toward the sea, you're going to be over here on this edge of Arabia. And there, he says, was the mountain that God spoke to him, where the burning bush was. And that the purpose was that Moses was taking the children of Israel to that mountain. So what it says is that they proceeded out, if we follow the scriptures, they proceeded out and they walked down this area, and it took them seven days. They walked down this area, and then as it says, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before. Whereas they'd been going this direction, all of a sudden they turn back this way, they turn up to this point, and they're blocked right there. And it says that Pharaoh, when he sees them leave and go that particular way in the Sinai, he says, the wilderness has captured them. That the wilderness has trapped them. Because he knows if you go down here and go up here, you're stuck. you got to come back. Because there's no place to go. Because they didn't go the way of the Philistines. If you go this way... This, this wilderness will trap you. You can't continue on that way because this mountain comes down and blocks it. And so there they are. They're blocked, as the scripture says to us. And that's when Pharaoh sends his chariots down to get them. So the, I believe that the place of the crossing of the Red Sea is exactly as the scripture says. It's not the Sea of Reeds. It's the Red Sea. And this is the ancient Red Sea. We call the Gulf of Aqaba today. 
the city of Aqaba is right here, and uh, we call this the Gulf of Aqaba. But in the ancient times, this was the Red Sea, no disputing it whatsoever. So what we're talking about is a crossing that would be from the tip of the Sinai over into Midian by these particular mountains. Now, what's so fascinating about that is it's only in this generation that a very interesting discovery has been made. It's as a result of satellite technology. You see, with satellites, you can set up in space and look down on the Earth. And uh, the first time they ran some satellites over and took some satellite pictures of the Middle East, they made a rather fascinating discovery. It turns out that in this particular area right here, it's called the Straits of Turin, T-U-R-I-N, the Straits of Turin, there's an underwater natural bridge, and it extends from the Sinai right like that, and that at low tide, uh, this is very shallow, this bridge that's across there. In fact, it's so shallow that ships, large ships that are going up in here to Aqaba, they can only go across the Straits of Turin at high tide because it's only 22 feet deep. And that when it gets real shallow, you can stand out in the middle of this and you're only this deep, chest high. So it doesn't take a whole lot for God to figure out how to blow the water so that the water would stack up and then there's this bridge. And then it's about a mile wide. And it only extends a short distance across there right into Arabia. I believe that as the Bible describes, that the children of Israel did go down into the way of the wilderness of the Sinai, that just as it said, they turned back, they camped against that blocked mountain. Pharaoh came down there, thought he had him trapped. And that God, by this great wind, blew the waters, stacked them up, and they went across on dry ground. And they crossed the Red Sea, just as it's called the Red Sea, and that Pharaoh, when he came out there after him, he rushed out there, and then the waters came back, and now he really did get drowned. Because on either side of that underwater bridge, there's a drop-off on this side and on this side, and the water drops off to 2,000 feet deep. And so it's like a real bridge of, of land that's there. And they, as a result of that land there in this chasm of water, they get a lot of strange things to happen here. If you get a, a big uh, flow of, uh, of wind and uh, the, the um, lunar gravity, the tides and so forth, they get real weird tides here in the Gulf of Aqaba. It's well known. It's a very interesting uh, piece of the ocean that extends right in that area. And I believe that just as the scripture describes to us that a real specific event took place in the Straits of Turin at the tip of Sinai near Migdal, just as the scripture says. And that at this point, they really did leave Egypt and they went into the land of Midian where Mount Sinai is at. And in fact, there are some archaeologists and scientists that think that the mountain that they're ultimately going to be going to is located about halfway up from here to here is a mount, mountain called Jabal Alaz. And there's some very interesting photographs that have been made of that mountain. There's a couple of books been written about it. It's a very intriguing mountain. It matches exactly this description of Mount Sinai. In fact, the upper part of the mountain has been severely burned. 
still burn to this day, that there was a huge fire on top of this mountain, melted rock. And uh, there's a cave up there, just like the cave described that Moses was in and that Elijah later went to. And it's uh, like the description of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and it faces the Sinai. And Sinai, you know, the ancient word means a very pointy rock. Sinai means pointed. And uh, this one huge mountain in this one area seems to match the description of all the biblical accounts. To go along with that, uh, Galatians 4, I believe it's verse 24, Paul makes reference to, and he says it this way, everyone knows Mount Hor, Mount Sinai, is in Arabia. He just casually throws it out. He's talking about an actual story of something else. But the New Testament, it says everybody knows Mount Sinai is in Arabia. This is not Arabia. This is Arabia over here. And so it seems to infer that that's the place. And so that the real wilderness that we're going to be experiencing here in the Exodus is in this area of Midian. It's in this area here, and they'll make their way up into the southern regions where we'll go to Kadesh Barnea and go up into the land of Israel and so forth. Now, big geography lesson here, I know. But the point that I really would like to make is that a lot of times when people teach this uh, passage, they don't really tell you that this is feasible, that it's plausible, that there really is places that match this. Uh, they tend to you know, use these other explanations and never really back up what the Scripture says. As a result, they bring... Um, discredit upon the scripture and they bring discredit upon Moses' testimony and really what God did for the children of Israel. But I believe that there's more than sufficient evidence, physical evidence, to support the biblical account and the story for us and that we should give reason to believe it. Now, for us, I think that's particularly important because what comes in this portion is some pretty serious uh, initial things about trusting God. Here's the children of Israel, some 600,000 men, along with wives, children, uh, grandparents, aunts, uncles, uh, you know, and all the folks. So we think there's estimated about two and a half to three million people that are involved in the Exodus that are now leaving Egypt and continuing out in this journey out in the wilderness. Now, for those of you who've participated with this congregation in the Feast of Tabernacles, where we've gone out with 300 people, we go through this incredible preparation just to go out there and figure out what we're going to eat once a day, um, how we're going to bathe, what tent we're going to be in, what, you know, what kind of songs we're going to sing. And we go through this incredible preparation just to go out and kind of commemorate this experience. I have no idea how in the world, they, I, it must have been a God who helped them to do this one. Uh, you know, for this number of people and so forth, because we, we're not we're not a smidgen of the number of people involved compared to the way the Scripture gives the account of this taking place. Let me read for you now, beginning at verse 10. I want to draw your attention to, as we did last week, to the story of the Passover. I want to draw attention to how God sets the stage for the salvation of Israel, specifically the crossing uh, of the Red Sea. They are at this location. They're getting ready to cross the Red Sea. They don't know they're getting ready to cross it. They're frightened. They're afraid of Pharaoh. And this is when God begins to move, beginning in chapter 14 and verse 10. And as Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, 
Is it because there was no graves in Egypt that you have taken us out to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to have served the Egyptians than to have died in the wilderness. And Moses responds and says, But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he has accomplished, which he will accomplish for you this day. Now, God knew when they left the city of Ramesses and they're going down that way, he knew they were going to get stuck. God knew that. He intended it. He said, let's not go by the way of the Philistines. That's bad news for you. I'm going to send you another way in which Pharaoh thinks it's bad news for you. But it's not bad news. It's salvation. And it's one of the first things that we learn about this having, as we look back on it, is sometimes God is not going to do the obvious thing in your life. But there's a reason for it. If you do the obvious thing, you're probably going to get hurt, and he's going to do something unusual with you, different from you, something that doesn't, you, it doesn't make sense to you, but it really has a great purpose behind it once you accomplish it, once you continue to go the way he has told you to go, once you follow the cloud, the pillar, once you do it his way, then you'll see, you'll understand why. And really what, partly what God is doing here is that God also has some ulterior motives. God intends to use this particular battle with Pharaoh to begin the steps of transforming the children of Israel in their thinking. Because quite honestly, although they've left Egypt at this point, they still fear Pharaoh and his chariots. And in this particular day and time, when we were at chariot warfare was the pinnacle of warfare in that day. Riding around with a chariot and throwing a spear, chucking a spear at somebody, that was the top of the line main battle tank of the battlefield in that day. And when, when a bunch of guys with chariots started running you down, you were in deep trouble in those particular days. And so Pharaoh and his big chariots coming out, the children of Israel, they're deathly afraid of this. But God wants to use that battle, wants to use that conflict to illustrate him, that he's more powerful and that you can trust him more uh, in the course of this. And that's essentially what we see happen. God uses uh, the natural things of the earth that he knows about. He sets the stage for this great contrast, for this battle to be turned to his favor so the children of Israel see. And if you'll recall, as the story goes on, sure enough, uh, God's going to deliver. And the way Moses sets the stage, he's being used by God. He says, do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And we, as new covenant believers, you need to underline that verse. Because that verse is all about the new covenant. Because in the Hebrew, it says, do not fear, stand by and see the Yeshua of the Lord. That word salvation there is the Hebrew word Yeshua. That what God is really starting to do, he's starting to show Yeshua to the world. And Israel gets to see front seat row uh, with regard to seeing what Yeshua is going to do. And I say that to you because, as I've said to you many times before, there's another day coming when there's going to be another exodus. And the purpose of that future exodus is for you to see, for the whole world to see, God come forth with his salvation, to see Yeshua come forth with his salvation in a greater way. And basically what Moses is saying to here, everybody calm down, you know, be quiet, 
stand still and see it. See what God does here. And I'm saying to you that in the future, there's going to be another version of this in which we're going to stand still and we're going to see the Yeshua of God. We're going to see Yeshua do something incredible uh, and terrific in terms of saving and delivering uh, his people. So the stage is set here for you know the precursor. And, and what we should be doing is getting a glimmer. We should be getting the vision of, of the pattern here, how God saved and then what he's going to do for us in the future, so that our confidence is in him. Because he said, I'm doing this so that you will know me. You will know how I will be the deliverer, how I will be the savior. And it says, furthermore, verse 15, then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. And as for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after you and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. And the angel of the Lord who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of the cloud stood from before them and stood behind them. So the angel of the Lord guarded Israel as they got ready to do it. Now, I need to tell you about an ancient, it's not in the Bible, but an ancient traditional teaching having to do with this passage. And it also has something to do with a greater theme that's going on. I believe that there's evidence of this to be true, although the scripture doesn't specifically emphasize it and say it. There was one particular man who acted on this word first. Had, had Somebody had to act on it first. I mean, somebody in Israel had to go forward first. And there was one particular man who's given the honor, and this is a traditional teaching, who's given the honor, who acted on the word of Moses here, and who first, even before there was dry land, he literally jumped in on the Red Sea. And in fact, the testimony is, this is this for us in the New Covenant, it's a very fascinating kind of covenant. The testimony was that this particular man thought that what God had said was concerning this water that he was going to make the water to be like dry land, and they were going to walk on the water. Have you ever heard about walking on water before? Yeshua walked on the water. You see, that the reason that miracle really penetrated those Jews is because they know about this ancient story, that the real faith to obey the Lord was that there was a particular man who thought that when Moses said, go forth, when the Lord said, go forth, he said, man, we're going to be walking on the water. We're going to walk right on the water. The Red Sea, we're like dry, we'll treat it like dry land. We'll walk right across and escape the Egyptians. Only he jumped in and he got wet, you know, because you couldn't walk on the water, you know. But the waters parted. And so all Israel knew how to go. But there was this one man who stepped out first. His name was Nakshan. Nakshan was the head of the tribe of Judah. And it's the tribe of Judah who always led in every element of the Exodus. And so Nakshan, leader of the tribe of Judah, he acted on this as the first tribe, the first leader, and he jumped in. And so it is said, you know, as the scripture says here, it says that uh, Israel walked across on dry land, but they have a little caveat in the tradition. And when they say, but Nakshan had wet feet. Israel walked across on dry land, but Nakshan's feet were wet. And the idea is he thought he was going to be walking on the water, but he got wet when he, when he jumped in. But then the waters parted and, and they all went across at that point. Which sets a stage, which is another theme of the Exodus, is that every element of the Exodus, Nakshan, 
and the tribe of Judah will be the vanguard force that will lead in all the journeys of the wilderness. And by the way, the scripture then speaks into the future. At the end of the age, I will, the, the prophet Zechariah says, I will save the tents of Judah first so that they might be a blessing. And that's a reference to the great exodus. In other words, I will, as Nakshan was the first to go across on the Red Sea, I will save the tents of Judah. And they were all living in tents at that time. You know, they were in Hatsukah. They were in tents. I will save the tents of Judah first. I will take them first. And then you'll see it, and then all will follow. And uh, that's a reference in Zechariah that ties into the greater exodus here. After the pattern of the ancient exodus, the tribe of Judah going across first. Now, praise God, they went across the Red Sea. It was even better than Cecil B. DeMille's, uh, the way they did it. But in the real event, Pharaoh lost big time. In the real event, sunk Pharaoh's chariots and wiped them out. And as a result... The scripture says to us, a tremendous thing happened within the hearts of Israel. That within the hearts of Israel, it was kind of, they'd all been kind of as a gang up to this point. Oh, they'd heard about the different plagues and judgments and so forth, and they'd all been like a big mob, you know, coming out of, out of uh, Egypt. But now they saw the hand of God. They saw his mighty hand. Deliver them. They saw their enemy destroyed. In fact, the bodies, it said, came floating up on the shore. I mean, they saw them. They're dead. God wiped them out. We were saved. They're dead. The enemy's dead. And it was very, it moved them. And the scripture says to us that, let me read the verse for you. In chapter 14, beginning of verse 31, there at the last, and it says, When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now, when the scripture says, and the people believed and they feared the Lord, it means they really did. I don't mean they kind of acknowledged. I mean, they were moved. They were transformed. They were changed. There was no doubt whatsoever. They had seen the hand of the Lord. They had seen the Lord on their behalf. Act and move. Just as Moses said, stand still and see the salvation. See what God does. And so they, they have a clear contrast. The fear of the enemy, they have clearly the message of God says, stand still, see what I do for you. They had fled, they had escaped as God had told them to do so. And now they'd seen God wipe the enemy out. I mean, it's just a, a real clear Example of God's hand. And that's the way every one of us would like to see God's hand. We would like every one of your problems, I guarantee you, you would like to see God do that. God, would you please come in and solve my indebtedness problem like the crossing the Red Sea? Say it beforehand, have me stand perfectly still, boom, solve my problem, and hooray. Yes, God, I believe. And that's the way we want God to do it every time. Well, God actually did it this way, this. I mean, he really did. I mean, he did it in a bold and dramatic fashion. Now, I, uh, I don't want to disappoint you, but it's going to be a short two months after this. The people are not going to believe the Lord because their faith is kind of weak. Now, they'll see it. They know it. But in a short two months, they're not going to be believing the Lord because other needs will have come in and, and uh, they'll be concerned. But at this moment, when we get to, to Exodus 15... Boy, they're rejoicing. This is one of the times when we hear of a song, music, 
being given true praise and worship to the Lord. And it says here in chapter 15, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. How many of you ever heard of that song? The horse and rider is thrown in the sea. Did you know that, that when we sing that song, we're singing the first song of Moses at the Exodus, at, at the uh, crossing of the Red Sea? That's what that song is about. That's where it comes from. We also sang another song tonight in our liturgy. We, you know, we sing it, you know, this song, Mika Mocha, who is like you, O Lord. Did you know that's where, that's where this song comes from? It's from this song of Moses. Look down there in verse 11. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praise, working wonders? You know, in the Song of Moses, we are singing, when we come to our normal Shabbat service, when we sing, Mi Kamoka, we are joining with our ancestors at the moment that they crossed the Red Sea. We're remembering this great deed that God did the salvation, and we're saying, like our ancestors, who is like you, O Lord? You are awesome, Lord, and doing wonders. And... Uh, so we're trying to remind ourselves and, and, and provoke within us this same faith that the children of Israel are said to have had at this point where they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to identify with this great story. It's not just a liturgical exercise. It's not just a nice little melody we sing. We truly, spiritually, are trying to relate to that moment when we saw the hand of God that dramatic and that bold. Now, what follows in the chapter that's, uh, that, that comes after this is this transition away from faith into concern of daily things. And what really God was trying to do was that this God who can deliver you from the hand of a mighty enemy like Pharaoh is the same God that is able to deliver you from the daily things that go on in your life. Only it's real hard for the children of Israel because they, that, they can't, you know, I'll believe God for the big stuff, but I'm not sure I can believe God for the little things. And quite honestly, your basic new covenant believer, oh, I believe God will save me for eternity from hellfire, damnation. I believe, oh, I believe that. Oh, I believe in the resurrection. I believe he'll raise me from the dead, but I don't believe God can help me in my personal needs that I have this week. And so we mumble and grumble and complain, just like the ancients did, being concerned about this, that, every other little dinky thing that's going on in our life this week, this particular day. But, oh, yes, without hesitation, we will believe God for the resurrection and we'll believe God off into the kingdom future. And it's like the children of Israel, oh, they believe God for the big things, but they won't believe him for the little things. And it's clear that some of the major lessons from the wilderness are you can trust God for the little things like water, food, shelter, a bandit. And that's what they're going to face in the next two chapters. They face things like water, food. And this is where they get introduced to the most basic and the most simple things of how the Lord provides on a daily basis. And in fact, the first religious instruction that God says, okay, I'm going to start teaching you about these basic things, he says. 
He says, the first thing that he does, he says, I'm going to give you bread to eat. I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you meat to eat. I'm going to give you bread. I'm going to give you water. He said, there's something that I want you to do, though, that will teach you this and prepare you so you'll trust me for these things. And guess what it is he tells him he wants to do? He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to... Uh, gather this bread for six days, but on the seventh day, I don't want you to go out and gather it. I want you to rest. Real simple thing. So I'm going to provide for you. Six days, you go out and gather, but on the seventh day, I want you to rest. You know what they did? They gathered the bread for six days, and on the seventh day, they went out to gather it again. I mean, it, they told, I mean, told him up front. He said, this is the way it'll work. He said, six days you will gather, and on the seventh you'll rest. And he said, now I'll explain to you how it will work. He said, well, how are we going to have enough bread for the seventh day? He said, I'll give you extra on the sixth day that we'll cover for it. I'll give you the blessing, the greater blessing, on the sixth day so that it covers through the seventh so you don't have to gather on the seventh. They didn't believe him. They can believe him. They've just seen the ten judgments on Egypt. They've seen Pharaoh's chariots wiped out. They've seen the crossing the Red Sea, but we can't get this instruction. We don't believe this. And you know what? We right now, in, in, our, in our day and age, we got the same problem. We believe, we truly believe that God has saved us that he's got this great plan of salvation, sent the Lamb of God, sent the Messiah, he's saved us and so forth. And you know what? One of the major things that we have a major problem over uh, with that, and I'm speaking in general now of the whole of the brethren, even though Yeshua is called the Lord of the Sabbath, we think the Sabbath is no more. What the, it, it's this little tiny thing. And in, in this messianic movement, that seems to be the strike rod of, of where the first contention comes. It's over this business of Sabbath. And you know what? That was the first issue, theological issue, the children of Israel had to deal with in the wilderness. The very first thing they had to deal with is, you mean I can trust you uh, to work six days and, and on the seventh day you'll provide? I had a man call me up and he said, Monty, he said, I've been following your teaching for a long time. He says, I got to tell you, he says, I'm a believer. He said, but I got to tell you, uh, I got a job, and it, but it makes me work on the Sabbath. What do you think? So what do you mean, what do I think? Well, what, what, what do you think I should do? And I said, well, what do you think you should do? He said, well, I don't think I should work on the Sabbath. I said, well, praise God. You know, I think you're following the instruction of God. He said, well, yeah, but what do I do? I said, trust the Lord. The Lord knows your heart. If you want to obey the Lord, ask him. The Lord gave you the job. He's trying to provide for you and prosper you and so forth. Ask him. You think that, you know, God can save us in the Red Sea, but you don't think he can solve this problem for you? If you want to follow the Lord, you don't think it will work. You don't trust the Lord. You don't think the Lord knows how to take care of you. I said, wasn't that the lesson? The Lord was proving, I'll take care of you the six days. Six days in a row, I'll take care. Can't trust me for one more. Trust me for one more. And God sets this as the beginning instruction of the first level of trust. The first level, I will provide. And it dates back, as we know from the instruction of Sabbath, it dates all the way back to the creation. I, the Lord, created the earth in six days, and then I rested on the seventh. It worked. The earth worked. The whole universe works. God takes one day off a week, and the universe still works. God doesn't have to work 24 hours a day, 24-7, to make the universe work. It works. 
Works fine. And we'll live. We'll keep going if we'll follow and trust him. But it's, it was a major issue with the children of Israel. They couldn't get it. They couldn't trust him. They had all kinds of problems with this. Same problems today. Same kind of problems today. And, and what we find here now in chapter 16 and 17 is the beginning, really, of what will be a theme that will carry throughout the wilderness experience. It's simple. God gives instructions. The children of Israel test every one of them. They don't believe them. Even though we know this great salvation that God provided. Even though we have clear evidence of it, we have a clear, he stated it, it's his intent, he's followed through, he's done it, but yet we won't follow his simplest instructions so that we can trust him. And that's obvious what the main part of the lesson here is about. Now, if that was all we were going to address, that would be more than sufficient lesson. I mean, we could stop right here and we could meditate on this the rest of Shabbat, and there's all, sh- all kinds of applications that probably each of us uh, personally could take. But for me, in preparing for this lesson, uh, this Shabbat, uh, something really uh, struck me and began to penetrate me. And because of a series of other indications, I believe that the Lord wants me to illustrate something else for you. Uh, this evening, uh, uh, one of our visiting brethren came in, and, and as he greeted me, um, he wanted to exhort me, he wanted to encourage me, and it was just an, another one in the succession of those exhortations I got from the Lord today. He said, boy, there's a lot of interesting things going on in Israel today. I said, yeah, really? I said, well, like what? I mean, what are, what are you noticing? He said, well, man, there's going to be a war. I said, oh. And I said to this brother, I said, oh, you must be reading from the same Bible I'm reading from. Well, yeah. And right now today, in fact, this week, this Shabbat, we have a new prime minister in Israel, Ariel Sharon got elected uh, to become the new prime minister of Israel by the greatest vote count of any prime minister in the history of Israel. And three and a half months ago, if somebody would have said, walked up to another person in this world and said, in three and a half months, Ariel Sharon will be the prime minister of Israel with the greatest landslide victory in the history of the nation of Israel for a voting prime minister, they would have said, you, you're on some kind of controlled substance and you need to quit that. Because Ariel Sharon was on the uh, bone pile of old political has-beens and there wasn't anybody, no one, who would have ever suggested. And by the way, I would have been right up there toward the head of the list with all of the people that have been monitoring Israel. And yet, we've seen something incredible take place. The circumstances of the events of the last couple of months have now brought about a very interesting circumstance in which the Ariel Sharon, this great famous general, is now the prime minister of Israel. It was Ariel Sharon who walked up on the Temple Mount to assert every Jew's right to walk onto the Temple Mount. And that's what Arafat cut loose all the Palestinians. And the latest uprising is because it was him who went up there. And now... Three and a half months later, he's the prime minister of Israel. And Barak, at that particular time, uh, was in solid. He, had a, he was a popular prime minister, and he, he was going to be there for a long time. And here we are in a very short time, and he's now the prime minister. For those of you who have followed my uh, teaching about the different names of the prime ministers, anytime you see a prime minister of Israel, find out what his name means, because he's living out the meaning of his name. And Barak, as I shared with you, who means lightning, and lightning comes with a storm, he took a perfectly peaceful situation 
and in less than two years turned it into the biggest storm you have ever seen in the history of the Middle East, and it is so stormy, he quit. In fact, when he lost the election, he resigned his seat from the Knesset as a head of the Labor uh, Party, and he, he, he's, he's out of politics. He, he's gone. And Ariel Sharon is now about to become the prime minister. And Sharon, um, there's a famous valley called the Valley of Sharon. And Sharon means, the name actually means, to make straight or to make stru- smooth or, in another colloquial way, to straighten things out, to, get, to make it right, to make it smooth, to make it straight, to make it right. And that's exactly what Ariel Sharon is coming in to do. He's saying, this whole Middle East peace thing, this is null and void. We're not going to now do what's right. We're going to do what's right. We're not going to give up Jerusalem. We're not going to give up our rights on the Temple Mount. Now, we'll make peace with the Palestinians as best as we will, but we're going to do the right thing, just like the meaning of his name. Well, to give you a little history about Ariel Sharon so that uh, you'll understand kind of where the Arab world is coming from, in all the previous battles of Israel with the Arab nations in the Middle East War, Ariel Sharon has been a hero in every battle. He's got quite a, quite a war record. Uh, dating back to the War of Independence, why he was just a commander of an infantry unit, you know, in those days. But in the 73 war, uh, he was a general and he had a tank division down in the Sinai in this same area, in this Sinai wilderness. And when the Egyptians came across the Suez Canal and they attacked into there and they were invading Israel, um, Ariel Sharon took one tank division and went around them and then came up this way and crossed the Suez Canal. He crossed, left the Sinai, and went into Egypt and was a short distance from Cairo with the full Israeli division. This concludes side A. Please turn the tape over to continue the teaching. Armored division. And I think this is one of those instances in which that the Lord, as I look back on it, the Lord was really showing something to me uh, because he was going to have, a day, have an effect on my life in the future. I was in the military in those days. In 1973, when that took place, I was on an aircraft carrier in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And uh, it was a pretty scary time for me. We, were, we had finished a cruise in Vietnam, and we were on our way home. We were going across the big arc across the Pacific. And every night, and it's about two weeks on a ship to go across the Pacific Ocean, and every night we would call right after um, supper at 7 o'clock, we would call the chart house on the ship and get the latitude and longitude of the ship. And we had this big map in our shop of the Pacific Ocean, and we were putting these uh, thumbtack push pins, and it was showing this arc, you know, this arc going across the Pacific Ocean back over to San Francisco. We were, we were going home. And so we were plotting in, and we used to make the junior guy call the chart house and get the latitude and longitude, and he would have to plot it. And Well, this one night, uh, it was in the middle of the, going back on the trip. It was there in October of, of 1973. And, um, um, and the guy calls the chart house, and he gets the numbers, and he walks back over, and he and instead of this arc, perfect arc going kind of like this across the northern Pacific, all of a sudden the thing is way up this way. It's going north and going the wrong direction. We're, we're not going home. We're, we're going toward the Kamchatka Peninsula. We're going toward Russia. And I'm going, oh, man, you got the numbers wrong. 
I said, what, you know, I was thinking he transposed the numbers. You know, you got the latitude and longitude backwards or something like that. You know, no, that didn't make sense. I said, well, none of it makes sense. I said, call the chart house again and get the right numbers. So the guy, he got on the phone, he calls the chart house again. And, uh, and he, all of a sudden he's like, uh, oh, well, okay. So he hangs up the phone and I said, well, what's the numbers? And he said, well, they wouldn't give the numbers. I said, what do you mean they wouldn't give the numbers? We were on an aircraft carrier out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. What do you mean they won't give it? And they said, yeah, they said it's classified. They won't give the latitude and longitude location of the ship. I said, what? And about that moment, probably the scariest moment in my life, why the loudspeaker system on the ship uh, announced the bosun blew his pipe, you know, the, you know, the, you know, now hear this. And the words that he said was, set Quebec working parties. And in the Navy, on an aircraft carrier, that's more scary than general quarters because that means load nuclear weapons. Load nuclear weapons. And when the ship does that, everybody turns to, they actually post the Marines with loaded M16s around the airplanes. And the captain immediately came on and he said, this is not a drill, guys. The Marines will shoot you. Don't cross the yellow tape. And all of a sudden, the whole evening just changed. We're supposed to be going home, only we're not going home. Instead, them big nuclear weapons are being wheeled out, and we're loaded them up under airplanes. And we got the Marines out there with the yellow tape, and there's no question that if you cross the tape, that 19-year-old kid with an M16 is going to shoot you. And I'm like, I'm praying. I'm saying, Lord, what is going on? What in the world is going on? Well, it turns out that the Middle East war in 1973 is underway. Egypt and Syria have attacked Israel, and there's a lot of concern about whether or not Israel is going to make it. But there was a general who had just pulled an incredible maneuver in the Sinai Peninsula, and the Soviets were so upset by this maneuver he had pulled that they were threatening, the Soviet Union was threatening to invade the Middle East, and Nixon stood up and said, you will not enter the Middle East. And he set the United States military on defense condition three, which is the same condition we were in the Cuban Missile Crisis, and said, you will not go into the Middle East, Russia. And this thing is going to get settled between Israel and, you know, the Arabs. The general that set that in motion was Ariel Sharon. And what he had done was he had run an end run around the Egyptian army, crossed the Suez Canal, and had just cut off two Egyptian armies in the Sinai. They had no fuel, no ammunition, and no water. And they were at his mercy. And the day he did it, they actually sent the film to the ship. I got to see this. The day he did it, he did something really coy. There was a French journalist that was traveling, you know, one of these... um, News guys traveling with the military units, taking pictures and so forth. There's this French journalist that was traveling with Ariel Sharon, and Sharon actually set this up and used this French journalist for this purpose. And here's what they did is as they were crossing the Suez Canal, they had a tank. They had an Israeli tank sitting there on the, on the um, Egypt, Egyptian side. And here's uh, General Sharon. He's standing there by the tank. And uh, you see the backside of this tank and, and the French journalist, and he's talking. And just over the shoulder of the uh, journalist and General Schroen, you see this pontoon bridge across the Suez Canal. And you're sitting there doing the interview, and you're counting them. I mean, you're sitting there watching the interview, and you're counting these Israeli armored vehicles, these tanks and uh, personnel carriers, and they're driving across the Suez. And while you're sitting there, you're, you know, you're listening to the interview, and you're watching the number of tanks, and there's like 
like two dozen tanks. You know, there's like 20, you count like 24 tanks coming across. There's a lot of armor, you know, coming across into Egypt here. And, uh, you know, the journalist is saying, well, General Sharon, uh, I understand that you've just crossed over the Suez. Uh, you're now in, and uh, you've invaded Egypt. And he says, I'm not invading Egypt. I'm invading Africa. <laughs> he says, I ain't taking on Egypt. I'm taking on the continent. <laughs> the continent? He's going to take Africa on, you know, with one division, you know. Very, very bodacious and so forth. Well, he gets done with the interview. And the whole time you're seeing this thing. You're seeing this scene here. And uh, just as they finish the interview, it's on perfect cue. Why the general says, okay, I'm I'm on my way to Cairo now. And boom, the big tank engine that's been sitting there. The tank engine fires up, you know, coughs, belches smoke, you know, and some smell and sound and everything. And the journalist is kind of jumping back as the tank is. And just as the engine fires up, you see Sharon step out of the way and the journalist. And he's trying to, you know, how the journalists, they always, uh, okay, well, this is uh, so-and-so reporting uh, with General Sharon uh, in Egypt uh, on our way to Cairo. He's trying to get that out. You know, he's being interrupted, but he's trying to get those words out. So he'll get it on the camera. And what you're interrupted by is this tank engine starting up. And you see this one Israeli soldier jump up on the tank. And he has a, he has a blue and white Benjamin cloth. It's like a smaller version of a talit. And he takes his he takes his his cloth and he goes like this. You you see the side of him. He goes like this and he flips it up like this. And he reaches down. He reaches down and he pulls a shofar up, and he blows the shofar like this. And instantly, in all the sand that you saw in the in the background, Israeli soldiers pop up out of the sand. Now they'd obviously been hidden there. They'd obviously staged this. You just been counting all these tanks coming across, and all of a sudden they blow the shofar, and the sand turns into Israeli soldiers. <laughs> and the word, the final word is, I'm with General Sharon, and we're on our way to Cairo. Then he allowed that press report to make it out. You know, usually they kind of censor. He let that one out, and Cairo saw that French report, and that's when they immediately sued for peace, because they believed it. They believed the entire Israeli army, General Sharon, this wild man, was in Egypt on the other side and was going to kill their army, was going to kill them, and that there was, the sand was going to turn into Israeli soldiers. And they believed it. And the Lord scored a great victory, and Ariel Sharon was part of that. This is the same man that's now prime minister of Israel. If there's one man in Israel that the Arabs are more afraid of, I can't think of who it is. Can you imagine the present situation with Ariel Sharon now being prime minister of Israel, the worst man that the Arab world can ever imagine to represent Israel? By the way, the last time in 1973, there was one thing that tipped the scales that really the Arab world did differently that told us we were going to have a war. They had a meeting of the Arab League never met before. The Arab League met, and that's where all the Arab nations agreed on the strategy to fight Israel. In September of this last year, the Arab League met for the first time since 1973. They've been meeting since September every two weeks. I guarantee you it's for one thing, the strategy of the next war in the Middle East. I believe that we are very close to seeing a war in the Middle East that is going to follow the pattern 
of a certain number of biblical prophecies that the last generation is supposed to see. And it's a very interesting kind of war because it's like this story about the Exodus. See, the Exodus, the thing I tried to illustrate to you was that God was very clear to say, follow my instructions, and he explained what was going to happen before the enemy came. It looked like it was going to go uh, to Israel's harm, and then God miraculously uh, delivered them, and it was very clear to Israel that God had delivered them. And it was just cut and dry. Huge contrast. Looks like we're going to lose. God delivers us in this incredible way, and it's a huge victory. And that's the way the prophecy describes this war. It describes this war as coming on in such a way that the enemy has a great plan to come in to wipe out Israel and that the world will be watching with great anticipation. Israel will be watching with great anticipation. And literally, there'll be a moment in the war in which that everybody will go, oh my goodness, Israel's going to lose. They'll literally think, the world will think, Israel's being overrun. And at the height of that moment, it says this fire comes from heaven and utterly destroys the enemies. And then this is what it says, the scripture says afterwards. It says the whole world then sees there's a God in the midst of Israel. Now, in our day and age, you know, we see a lot of interesting things. We see a lot of interesting miracles, but we don't see things on the scale of the Red Sea. We don't see things quite, but it says this thing will be on that scale. Literally, it will says, it says, people, that song we sing, Mika Mocha, we're going to see what's going to take place, and you and I are going to utter from our spirit, we're going to be saying, who is like you, O Lord? There is no one like you. Because literally, in the course of the few short days of this war, the face of the Middle East is going to change forever. Can you imagine such a world on that day? The prophecy says something very fascinating is going to happen right after this war. And this is where it gets really interesting. It says, at that moment, the world will then suddenly realize that God sent Israel into the nations, exiled them into the nations for the purpose of punishing them for their treachery and for their unfaithfulness. But that now, at this moment, God has now turned and is going to restore the fortunes of Jacob. And he's now on Israel's side against the nations. And it says at that moment, the name of Israel will never be put to shame again forever. I mean, we're talking about a major change is getting ready to take place. You know what it says further? It says God, at that moment, will then pour out his spirit on all mankind that belongs to him. He'll pour out his spirit on the whole house of Israel and all the people that belong to him. He will pour out his spirit on all of them, and they will know the Lord just like Israel did when they crossed the Red Sea. It'll be that dramatic event. Now, we look at the ancient story of the crossing of the Red Sea, and we, we, we comment about the movie, and we've all heard the story and heard it discussed before, but something getting, is getting ready to happen in our generation, in our time. It may be in this year, in the, in the months before us, that's going to be just as dramatic as that was to that generation. And it says there's going to be big changes in the world as a result. It says all the nations will know there's a God in the midst of Israel. Only they're not going to like it. They're going to hate it. And that's part of the reason why they will come against Jerusalem in the final days. Because they hate God. But at that point, God will have declared 
openly and demonstrated it openly before all people, I am standing in the midst of Israel, and I'm now restoring the fortunes of Jacob upon the whole house of Israel. I believe that when that war happens, it's not so much what will happen in the war, it's what happens after the war. Because there's no doubt that, it, that Israel and God is going to win. No doubt. And with Ariel Sharon as prime minister, and given his testimony of what he's done before, and since his name means to make it right, I think we're getting ready to see some real interesting things, brethren. Now, when those events begin to unfold, I'm certain that we'll spend some more detailed time, and I'll walk you through moment by moment, those prophecies. But I just want to summarize by showing you one point um, that I think you'll, be, you'll find real fascinating. Turn with me to Prophet Joel 2, and we'll conclude with this for this evening. This is a verse you and I have uh, heard um, in our generation. We have heard this verse shared many, many times. It's Joel 2.28. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. And even on the male and female servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And the way this prophecy is written by Joel is it starts out with, the poor outpouring of God's Spirit on all of mankind, that something wonderful, a spiritual uh, awakening, a special spiritual thing is going to take place, and it just blends right into the final judgment. In other words, it's like God pours out His Spirit on all mankind for those that belong to the Lord, and it blends right into the final judgment, the day of the Lord. I mean, it just goes right into that description. So we know this outpouring of the Holy Spirit precedes the great day of the Lord. We know it precedes it. But it also gave us another prerequisite of something else that precedes this. And it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on mankind. It will come about after what? What has to happen before God pours out his spirit on all mankind? Back it up one verse. Verse 27. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. And those words track to Ezekiel chapter 39 that describe the aftermath of a battle in the mountains of Israel on the unwalled villages of Israel. A battle in which that God comes to their aid and that they are never put to shame again. Now, I don't know which is more exciting to me. A great battle in Israel in which God's hand is clearly shown like the events of the crossing of the Red Sea or the huge blessing that is to take place after this. I wonder what kind of a world would it be for us spiritually to see God's Spirit poured out even on our sons and daughters. Our sons and daughters even prophesy. What, what spiritually for us, what would that be like? I'm not sure, but I, I think it'd be good. I think, it'd be, I think it would be necessary for the generation that is getting ready to see the end of the age. I think that if you're going to make it through the end of the age, you're going to need God's Spirit poured out on you like you've never had it poured out on you before. You're going to need some real special spiritual help you know, to get through this. You're going to need a dose of faith and God's strengthening Because what we're getting ready to go through is like under the wilderness experience where you're going to be concerned about daily things like water and food and how do we make it. And you're going to have to trust the Lord. 
Because what God's got planned is big. It's huge. It's him revealing himself to the whole world, manifesting himself. And you know what the word of exhortation is going to be for us in those days? You know what it's really going to be? Stand still and see the salvation of God. You're getting ready to see it. And brethren, it's just fascinating what's getting ready to take place. And as it begins to unfold, why take note and see if the Lord does what he said he was going to do. See if he reveals himself in a bold and dramatic fashion and see if it isn't the testimony of all of us. Surely there's a God in the midst of Israel. And we'll see him. I believe it's coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Thank you, Lord, how you boldly and dramatically illustrated for us by a great contrast of Pharaoh's army, your great salvation, your great deliverance. And Lord, we would want to be the people like our ancestors who, upon seeing your great hand at the crossing of the Red Sea, believed you and believed your servant Moses. Lord, I would want us to draw application from that example and learn from the ancients so that when we see this great conflict, this great war that the prophets have said would come, that we would have had the knowledge before it came, that we would see your hand in the war, we would see the results of it, and that we too would believe you and your servant Yeshua and believe in the Messiah and believe that you're a God that can be trusted who does great and mighty things, a God of many wonders, awesome wonders, and that our faith might be strengthened and encouraged And Lord, we look forward to the day when you're getting ready to come. We look forward to the day when you'll pour out your spirit upon all of us. If those days that are spoken of by the prophets are about to come to our days, I would pray, Lord, that we would surely remember the stories of old and that we would take application to them and we would be a people who are prepared for those days to spiritually believe you. So, Lord, we lift up the nation of Israel to you right now. We know what your love for Israel is. We know that you've made a covenant forever and ever with them. And we know that you're jealous for your land and for your namesake. And we know that the enemies of you will not rise up and prevail. We know that you will prevail over them. So, Lord, uh, we ask that you would just make us to be wise and understanding of all of those events as they unfold and to have the eyes to see you and your great hand. That this assembly, Lord, upon seeing such events, when we would come together and we would sing that song that comes from the first song of Moses, that would have a new and special meaning for us in our days. And we would ask the question, who is like you, O Lord? There is no one like you. And we would be the witnesses giving answer. There is no one like you, Lord. There is no other. So, Lord, we turn to you and we submit our hearts to you concerning these things. And we ask, Lord, that you'd make, it, make us wise unto salvation in our days, make us wise unto your plan in our days. And we'll continue to look to you, just as the children of Israel look to the guiding pillar of the cloud by day and fire by night to lead them through the wilderness, to lead us also through the rest of this journey that you have planned for us. And we pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968-Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. 
Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.